Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Welcome to Waikai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And as always, uh, after service is over, please feel free to approach any one of our elders uh, with any questions you may have, any comments you have on your mind, uh, needs, whatnot. Sunday mornings are a great time to do that. And so uh, sometimes just a quick check-in can be very beneficial. Now at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 21 and verse 25 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 38 is our passage this morning, and that passage can be found on page 881, page 881, Luke chapter 21 and verse uh, 25. And before we look at our text together, would you please uh, join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this time of worship where uh, we can gather so freely as a church family. We know that uh, your word is living, it's active, it's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, the, the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word stands forever. And so please, God, by the Spirit and by your grace, would you make your word effective in each of our hearts that we might behold Jesus Christ in his uh, life-changing glory. Would you please meet us where we're at and give to us what we need most? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We come to the second half of Jesus' final set of public teaching before his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion, and this is the last word from him publicly, and this is a word of judgment and of his return, and, and there's a gravity uh, within these verses that perhaps we may not be used to, a, a weighty seriousness to these words. That, that with the cross before him and the people in front of him, Jesus speaks about what is going to come in the more immediate future and what is going to come before the end of time. There's both the short and the long term in view here. And both are related to the coming judgment and to his second coming. Now, we've looked at the short term where Jesus states uh, very matter-of-factly that there is going to be judgment upon Jerusalem and that the seemingly uh, permanent massive, impressive temple that Israel's identity had been wrapped up in, the very presence of God uh, symbolized within it. There will be judgment upon Jerusalem where not even one stone will be left upon another. That's, that's the short term. And in 70 AD, there's going to be a, a massive, gruesome loss of life that illustrates the very vengeance of God upon the ones responsible for Jesus' rejection and crucifixion. And he warns his people beforehand, flee from that. That's the near. That's the short term in the verses immediately prior. But in a way, uh, this destruction in Jerusalem, which many of us may not have even realized occurred, being so localized in geography and time, that destruction is somewhat of a pointer to something much greater, a kind of rehearsal, as Charles Spurgeon puts it, of what is yet to be. That judgment is a foretaste of a future one, and in this text, the short-term and the long-term of what Jesus is speaking about here can sometimes melt together. You know, when you go on a hike and you see the ridge from afar and it looks like one gigantic piece of mountain, and then you get closer to it and realize that this is actually a collection of peaks and ridges that look together from one vantage point but are actually revealed to be, to be multiple. I think that's what's happening within these verses, that that destruction of Jerusalem and that particular judgment seems to blur into the end of time until you get closer and live through the centuries and you realize that as horrible as Jerusalem's fall had been, 
It's somewhat of an indicator of all of human history and the upcoming judgment which will occur in the future. That as Israel had been given such blessings and, and God had been so merciful to them in his long suffering and that as opportunities for repentance were provided and yet rarely if ever truly taken, culminating in the gift of his son who was ultimately rejected as Israel continued her trek away from God, we have this pointer of sorts in this near term of what is to be found in the last term. For how long God has been so long-suffering to all of humanity. And on the one hand, it's very uncomfortable to think about it. Which makes the timing of this teaching immediately prior to the cross so potent. This is really Jesus' last public word. And this is really the theme of what he's saying. But there's this phenomenon, I think, that even as Jesus speaks about this judgment and return. And even the timing of this as his last word. We are also, as uncomfortable as it may feel, we are equally likely to squirm and then simply forget about it almost entirely and kind of live our lives without any serious uh, life-altering thought to Jesus' return and the end of the world. I don't know uh, that we think enough about it. I know that I don't. And maybe that's a coping mechanism. But if we were to uh, think about it seriously, it would change holistically uh, almost everything about our lives. And it's to this longer-term view to which Jesus speaks to us today. We begin in verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Oh, we see first in these verses that the return of Jesus Christ is going to be a cosmic, a worldwide, and unmistakable event that will strike fear into the hearts of those who do not know him, but to those who do, that the long-awaited kingdom is arriving. The second coming of Jesus is going to be entirely unlike the first one, which was in a manger and only a handful of shepherds and wise men visited and almost no one else really knew about it. No, Jesus' return is going to have, as it's setting, signs in the cosmos, distress in the nations, and worldwide tumult. And that return is going to mean two different things to two different kinds of people. It will either be judgment or it will be redemption. Now, when Jesus speaks of signs and sun and moon and stars, I think it's proper to take that literally. That something about the sun and moon and stars is going to be utterly different than what we are used to. And on earth, distress of the nations. I mean, this has actually become so normalized that I'm surprised if the top stories on most news sites do not contain some kind of drama between people groups. The roaring of the seas and the waves, we know how the ocean is tied to the moon and its gravitational pull. We know how earthquakes can cause these very same things. There was a massive one in Japan just about a week ago. A lot of these normal signs of what must take place before the end uh, will occur is just natural. In verse 10 of the same chapter, they're just ongoing. And a lot of these have been occurring to the degree that we aren't even all that shocked that they do occur. But there's going to be this amplification prior to Jesus' return. It's, it's going to be more than what we are used to. And that return means two different things to two different kinds of people. Uh, to the first, the one who doesn't know God. You know, if you spend your whole life 
uh, investing yourself in this world and not the next. If the entirety of your efforts are really to make this earthly abode in these, these 70 to 90 years or so as comfortable and as lavish and as happy as possible, then when these things occur with more potency, absolutely there's fear. Because what you felt to be permanent and lasting uh, doesn't feel all that permanent and lasting anymore. If you were within earshot of Jesus' prediction that the temple would be demolished with not one of his 40 to 50 ton stones left upon another, you might have chuckled because of how foolish it would sound that a building of this magnitude would ever come tumbling down. The people banked their future on such an immovable, ornate landmark, especially considering what it was supposed to represent. And likewise, if you go outside today and even mention that, this world's not going to be around for that much longer. And that we better get ready for what is to come. Chuckle might be the mildest response you get. Because it feels so permanent. It feels so immovable. But when Jesus does near his return for us, everything that a worldly person has built and hopes in shall be fleeting in just moments. And in that time, there's going to be the realization that the whole of their lives have been built upon sand and not upon rock. And the very sight of the Son of Man in a cloud of power and with great glory is going to be met with dread and fearfulness. For in that moment, all that the people refuse to believe will undeniably be proven to be true. And that second coming of Jesus will mean judgment to the ones who refused to recognize him in their lives. Uh, but for the Christian, it's different. Verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, Strain up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. It means judgment for some, uh, but it means redemption for those who believe. You know, there's something in these words that imply that the earthly existence for the believers is different. Uh, we have to straighten up because I think there's a weariness of, of the yearning to be faithful to them that has really bent us out of shape, especially in a world for the most part uh, antagonistic to him. We have to straighten up because we've been broken down. And we have to raise our heads uh, for so often our heads are drooped down by things that occur uh, in human society today. We have countless examples of heartbreak, uh, disease, uh, hardship, uh, apostasy. We, we know people who've left the faith and that can batter even the strongest of believers. But when everything we haven't invested in starts to rumble, and the moment we've been looking forward to is arriving near. There doesn't need to be any fear for the Christian who is more at home with Christ than they were ever were here. There's a straightening up. There's a lifting of the chin for our Savior, our Lord, and our King is coming soon. And so for the one, Jesus' return is terrible chaos. To the other, a joyous anticipation. For the one, it means the loss of everything. To the other who, who lost everything for the sake of Christ, it's gain. The believer's hope is realized. Salvation, uh, there's full possession, and the kingdom we've been longing for will be established. And, and we find this anticipation and hope in other parts of the Bible as well. Uh, the encouragement of Hebrews 10, 37. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. And this is the point where death is swallowed up. And every tear in our eye is wiped away by the very hand of Jesus himself, for he will be that close to us. 
And so we can straighten up and lift our chins even if worldwide chaos is ensuing. And so Jesus' return is going to be a cosmic event, and it's going to mean two different things to two different people, one judgment and the other, the fullness of our redemption. Now, before we move on, I think that we are sometimes tempted uh, to relegate Jesus to something uh, much smaller than what he is. And we often want him to be merely uh, this kind of crutch that you use when you are in need of help and, until you get back on your feet, or, or a bit of comfort when things are, are tough, or, or a friend when uh, people turn their backs on you, which he is, all of these things. But we can relegate him easily to this kind of hidden, quiet relationship at the expense of his identity as a coming king who will return for his people. We can easily relegate him to to a kind of manageable Christianity that is a useful tool to make your life better on earth in terms of morals, a community, a safe place to raise your kids, a consolation when things are hard that kind of negates any thought of a worldwide cosmic anticipation of the revelation of the Son of God. And Jesus came in the manger. He died on a cross. He rose from the grave, and he did all of that. And the neighboring nations didn't even really know about it. Lots of people died on Roman crosses in the empire. And today it can be similar as the watching world doesn't really pay any attention to them. And in response, sometimes we can shrink him down and kind of localize Jesus to, how can he help me get from point A to point B? And find me the spouse that's really going to make my life complete. And get me the job that I think I deserve and smooth things over with the in-laws and, and help me beat my cancer and get over these anger issues and this trauma and this substance abuse and my anxiety. Help my kids perform better at this sport and get into this college and et cetera, et cetera. And as major as these issues can feel, we inadvertently localize Jesus and shrink him down to be about the size of a personal little God that somehow this great God exists for my glory rather than me being created for his. And we can inadvertently localize and shrink him down when the testimony of Scripture is entirely different than that. And a second coming is not going to be like the first at all. We are going to see him for who he really is. And it's going to be a cosmic event where all of humanity, it will mean one thing for the one and the other for the other. Everything in creation hinges upon Jesus Christ. And sometimes it is that we have to take a step back and see this all in its proper perspective. We continue in verse 29. And he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all is taking place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. 
Uh, the main truth of our text is that Jesus is going to return, and it means judgment and redemption. And here it is that we have the application of that truth in parable and exhortation. And in its simplest form, the basic application is this. Be prepared for it. Be ready for Jesus. Don't let this day come upon any of us suddenly like a trap. Be prepared for it. And the visual that Jesus gives to us, which may not land as well on Hawaii people, is, is a visual of the signs of the changing seasons. You know, we don't have the same seasons as Israel has, where all the trees that are bare begin to come in leaf, and you can feel that summer's coming. We have a lot of evergreens here, and, and outside of this past week, a pretty consistent temperature range. We probably have more anticipation of the coming summer when we see the product lineup change at Costco. But we don't need to know what a fig tree looks like to get Jesus' point, which is that we should be very cognizant of what is happening in the world. We should be very cognizant of the signs that Jesus is giving us here. Now, this is not a call to be so absorbed in politics as if that is a real answer to the kingdom. But we should be aware of major political events and movements to heighten our own preparedness to see Jesus face to face. There's going to be a litany of signs and visuals, uh, news reports, signs in the skies that will alert God's people to make themselves ready. Now, Jesus is not asking his people to try and predict a date, which so many ignore. Uh, Jesus himself says in Mark's version of this discourse, Mark 13, 32, but concerning that day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. If Jesus doesn't know and the angels don't know time and date, we shouldn't try and figure it out either. But when Jesus is telling us to be aware of the figurative fig leaves, he is not asking us to place our bets on a date and year. No, the thrust of his application in relation to his return and coming again is simply that we would be ready, that we would be prepared, and that when we see more of these things of this nature, that that should make us even more ready and not taken off guard. Now, how do we be ready? There's two strains, really. Verse 34 is the first be, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. You know, this is uh, Jesus' warning against distraction, uh, I think in the form of excess, where it's overeating or overdrinking or overconcern with things that are frankly non-eternal. Uh, the inordinate care of getting more or, or keeping more or spending more or worry about losing more, uh, these are the things that can weigh us down and cause us to lose sight of what it is that is ultimately coming and what it is that ultimately matters to the point where we are taken off guard because we have now become unprepared for. That's when the return of Jesus feels more like a trap than it does anything else. Now, I think it's important to notice that Jesus' primary audience here is really his 12 that are closest to him. And so this discourse isn't given in a bar, nor is it given in a seedy place with needles hanging out of people's arms. It's not given in fancy places, uh, palaces to the uber wealthy and the elite either. No, it's actually given to people who have already left all to follow him, which means that even those who are closest to him are in a kind of danger as well, and that we all have to watch ourselves because we can so easily forget what we're about and so easily put off what we're supposed to be doing and so easily caught up with, can we get to this kid to practice on time and this one ready for bed at that time and make sure dinner actually happens and the laundry is done and we're ready for tomorrow. 
Or we can just as easily come home and turn on the TV and scroll on the phone and pop open a cold one and kind of self-medicate because this exact same day is going to happen until the end of the week. And anesthetize ourselves with mindless scrolling or hours of binge watching, of video game playing, or pornography. Whatever it is that soothes us so that the weekend can get here quicker. Or we can simply uh, misplace our emphasis and unwisely weigh certain things that are really but dust and feel no gravity for the things that matter most. That we are so caught up with the cares of this life that we are almost entirely unfocused with things of eternal importance. A simple distraction so that our disposition is in the one place rather than the other. You know, when I come home from uh, work, from church, usually when I park in the driveways, and I make my loud footsteps towards that front door. Uh, the kids run and greet me right at the door. They try to be the first ones to do so. And even the dog shoves her head into the crack right as the door is opening. But if that TV's on, I'll come in and they don't even hear the door. And I'll say, I'm home. And they won't even look up at me. Only my dog runs to me. <laughs> that TV is powerful. It's powerful. In this world, in its present form, it's powerful. You can't even hear the truck parking, the engine turn off, the footsteps coming, the door unlocking, because we are completely immersed in something else. And it's almost as simple as that, but obviously uh, more sophisticated than that. But we can't have our hearts set on two things at the same time. And we can get sucked in and therefore so caught up in our own gratification, our own position and placement compared to other people in this world our own comfort and how do I grow this indulgence that we're utterly unaware of things of much greater uh, importance than picking our own belly buttons in this inordinate pursuit of this life. And what we're supposed to do when the world can get rough and our backs are bent and our chins are down, uh, what we're supposed to do is not bury our faces into some kind of gluttony to make ourselves feel better or bring our cups up until we see the bottom of them and pour out another or to wall ourselves in and financially make a hedge of protection around us and put all our eggs into this basket. No, we're supposed to watch ourselves. Paul says a very similar thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Let us watch and be sober. I was talking to uh, two, two uh, uh, groups of people at our church who were in Japan uh, during the earthquake, and they heard the sirens right as it began to happen and felt some shaking. They were further away. But that's exactly what these kinds of events are supposed to do within our hearts. They're supposed to sound a siren to remind ourselves, to prepare ourselves for his return. And even if that return is not today or tomorrow, even if that return is not very imminent, our preparedness is supposed to be ready regardless. There's not one sign that's going to trigger Jesus' return. But this combination of events is supposed to act as an alarm bell force so that we would not fall asleep or be dull or be distracted, but so that we might have our hearts aligned and more attuned to hit the inevitable and coming end. All of us, every single one of us are prone to be caught up in the things of the world to the point where we lose sight of the only things that will last forever. And that's the first strain. The second strain is this, verse 36. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Here we have again the same theme of staying awake. But instead of watching ourselves and our lives and our distractions, this is a call to prayer. And this is not a call to just any kind of prayer. This is a call specifically to pray for strength. 
And I don't think the escape here is to escape from the world uh, so that we don't get harmed. I think it's more so to be kept from the affection for the world that makes us make our home here to the point that we don't look forward to Christ's return. You know, brothers and sisters, we're weak. We are. I mean, we are so easily distracted. We are the kinds of people who can open the Word of God, feel conviction by it, and like James says in James 1, through 24, strangely forget it, like a person forgets his own face in a mirror. I mean, we're that weak. And when things get bad and the drama reaches closer to home, we can't expect to make it through if we are drowsy and unprayerful. I mean, we just can't. And we can read this, read this last phrase to stand before the Son of God and think, well, you know what? I'm going to go through some kind of workout program so that we would have the strength to stand before the Son of Man when he comes in the clouds and full of glory. And this is where real men and women show what we are made of. That when all these things occur, I'm not going to be like the other people. And proclaim with Peter, even if all deny you, I never will. And we all know what happens with him, don't we? This confident, strong one. Three times denial before the rooster crows in one single night. And brothers and sisters, none of us are strong enough. Only the ones who recognize that fact are actually going to pray for real strength. And this is a call for prayer uh, because we're weak. And we're not going to be ready for Jesus' return unless we're prayerful. But when we are weak, that's when we find ourselves to be strong. For we have to rest on uh, someone, something stronger than we are. This is really a call, I think, to utter dependence. This is a call to communion with them so that we might find the source of true power and that we would abide in him, John 15. Because apart from him, we can't do anything. Uh, to the degree that we pray is to the degree that we're confessing, I need your strength, Jesus. And to the degree that we don't pray is to the degree that we're proclaiming, I can stand on my own two feet. Our prayer lives, they don't really lie. And so Jesus is telling his people to pray and to commune with me. Now, again, there's gravity to Jesus' last set of public teaching before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. And his disciples, they're not prepared for this, even though Jesus has been telling them everything about this. They're about to see the one they left everything for, jailed, tortured, mocked, and from afar, because the majority of them are too scared to get any nearer than that, they're going to witness Jesus' death upon the cross. It's going to get really bad before it gets better. And brothers and sisters, the Bible is clear that it's going to get really bad before Jesus returns again. I don't know how else to say it. It's going to get really bad. If what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD is just but a rehearsal and the mini peak at the foothills of the real mountain, it's going to get bad. But Jesus gives us two assurances in these verses, in verse 32 and 33. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The first one is probably most difficult to understand. How is it that this generation will not pass away until all has taken place? Here's what I think, and I could be wrong. When Elijah in 1 Kings lone prophet in a nation where everyone seemed to turn to idolatry and run away from Yahweh, even after perhaps one of the most massive spiritual victories we find. Elijah is still so afraid that he takes off into the woods because he thinks 
Someone's going to kill me. Someone wants me dead. There's no one left but me. And he says it as much in 1 Kings 19, 14. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. It's only me. Things are that bad. And those in power, they want to kill me. What does God tell them? He says, there's going to be a new king. And there's going to be a new prophet after you, Elisha. And there are 7,000 more in Israel that are mine. Now, why do I bring that up? I think when things get really bad, we will feel, and some of us may feel this way now, that there aren't that many real Christians left. That I'm the only one in my family. I'm the only little light at work. I'm the only little piece of salt in my community. I'm the only Christian in my marriage. And there isn't any hope. I think when Jesus is saying this generation will not pass away until all is taking place, I think Jesus is saying that this generation of my people, this church age, even when things look most bleak, the church is not going to die before I return. What does Jesus say in Matthew 16, 18? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think that's one reassurance that God is promising to his people. The second is this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You know, just as the disciples scattered when everything that Jesus said would happen, happened. What they were doing was letting their feelings take over rather than remembering what Jesus told them. They were, what they were doing is having their ability to interpret the circumstances be placed of higher uh, credibility than the word of God himself, even though Jesus had been telling them these things the entire time. And the very same thing can happen to each of us. Sometimes we lose sight of the glories of Jesus because we're so absorbed with the passing joys of this world. Or our present worries are blinding us to future realities and our feelings, they preach to us something. And we begin to believe them more than we do his promises to never leave us nor forsake us. And this is a reminder to the people in front of them. It's a reminder to each of us that Jesus' word is more reliable than the ground that you're standing on. Jesus' word is more solid than the amount of cash you've collected in your barn houses. Jesus' word is concrete that the grass withers and the flower fades. But only his word stands forever. And we must have uh, what he says uh, influence our minds and our hearts more than anything that we can see, touch, taste, and feel. And so, at its most basic, the application to the reality of future judgment and Jesus' return and our redemption is that we be prepared for it. And to do so, we should be awake. We should be aware of the signs to make us long for that more, undistracted by this passing world and drawing our strength from him through prayer and through his word. Verse 37, and we'll close with this. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. You know, I think um, there's a beautiful simplicity of Jesus' final days that he just keeps on teaching. And we find the same kind of beautiful simplicity in the early church when we read the book of Acts as well, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, 
to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayers. That's it. It's supernatural means supernatural strength. It's just so simple. And it is that God gets all the glory when this fledgling, uh, seemingly weak church survives and thrives in the most difficult times. How? By the word of God, by prayer, and by the gathering of his church. I mean, that's something. How can a people like us survive through the worst of times? And unless this is true and this is supernatural. As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that as much as Jesus is uh, the creator of all, the king, the ruler, the coming judge, uh, people might expect that's how God's supposed to come. But that's not how he came the first time. He asks us to observe this uh, regularly before he returns. This is our rehearsal before the real wedding feast. It, it, it makes sense that God would send his son to judge the world. It doesn't make sense that he would send his son first to save it. And as we hold this cup of, of grape juice to represent his blood, we know only this washes away my sin. Only this gives me confidence to stand before him when he returns. And when we hold that cracker, we know Every bit of his body in its entirety is given to us. And now it is that we make up his body. He's given all of himself for us to partake, that we might give all of ourselves to him in response. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, your word is uh, eternal. It's true. And... um, We're prone to forget it. So by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you impress it deep into our hearts and cause it to bear real fruit in our actual living. Father, you you know us and uh, you're patient with us and we're so prone to uh, trust in things that we can see and touch. Uh, We're so prone to believe in things that appear to be lasting. We're so prone to believe promises that just aren't true. And Lord, please, Father, please, by your mercy and grace, Would you give us confidence that only you, your word, will outlast this world? Uh, Change our value system. Give us joy in our salvation again, even if we've been Christian for a long time and so used to it. Uh, For those of us who aren't Christian, would you open eyes by your spirit, show your supernatural strength through the simple preaching of your word in the cross, that it might be the power of God unto salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.